Hello, everyone. Welcome to our last Bounty Podcast of 2022. I'm Spectre with me is Z. So, yeah, heads up that today and tomorrow will be our last episodes for a few weeks until we return on January 9th and 10th. And, of course, over that time, we wish everyone a happy holidays. But we still have some topics for you today uh, on some bugs that were published as well as some discussion around Pwn to Own. So I guess we'll just jump in uh, starting there with Pwn to Own. So, yeah, Pwn to Own Toronto took place um, over the last like week or so. Um, you know, as to be expected from a lot of Pwn to Own now, it, it was mostly uh, IoT stuff, a lot of router bugs, uh, also some printer issues, um, and of course, a, a good number of collision. Uh, if you if you scroll down the page, you'll see a lot of, uh, well, there was a few failures too, but yeah, there was, there was at least like four or five, maybe six collisions. So uh, yeah, I mean, which happens when you're talking about the IoT space, especially when you have these lower hanging fruit type issues. Um, but yeah, we just, we, we figured we mentioned Pwn to Own itself. Um, Z wanted to give it a shout out for, uh, people to maybe look at as something to do, uh, especially where like the, the types of issues that were found, uh, and some of the issues we have today, uh, well, of course, where it's the, the bounty episode, uh, were a bit more like, uh, they, they weren't like binary level issues so much. Um, so yeah, Z, I'll let you talk about that, but, um. I think yeah, I, um, I have a bit of disagreements, which I'll get into. We do have some disagreements over recommending it, but nonetheless, the results are out, at the very least, if you're interested. I think it's a bit unfair to kind of, you know, hate on Pwntone for having some of the more IoT stuff. You're saying more calm because that, like, they run an IoT event now. That's the focus of it. So, yes, it has IoT. Um, And, yeah, the bugs do kind of come out as a lot of these are kind of higher level or easier to exploit issues. We're actually going to be talking about a couple of them later on in the episode. I kind of want to mention it here, though, because, you know, for a long time, Pwn to Own has had more of the binary lean in the last few years. I think since I started with, like, I think it was Miami was one of the first one a few years ago where they started doing more of the IoT stuff. Um, you know, they're paying out bounties for some of these higher level issues. It is more accessible. And I think it is something that those of you who are doing bug bounty hunting might want to actually consider as an option for some to at least, you know, look into doing getting the payouts on them. There are some risks involved with trying to hold on for Pwntone. Um, the couple bugs we're actually going to be talking about fall foul of those as they got patched immediately before the contest. Um. I think just a like week or so before uh, kind of taking away any of the bounty they had. Nonetheless, I do think it's worth at least considering looking for these sorts of bugs. If you want to get a payout immediately, you can't always go to ZDI directly and just go through their normal bounty program, uh, which I don't think pays out quite as well. Like you kind of have the uh, not nearly really. I don't know what the whole comparison is, actually, because, I mean, they pay out better when we talk about Pwntone results, but oftentimes, um, you know, when we're talking about the Chrome bug, they're, they're paying out better regardless. I don't know what the exact comparison is, like, how much less you're really getting compared with Pwntone versus not. Because ultimately, it's still the vendors paying these out. Yeah, I mean, I, I know some numbers, but uh, I don't have, like, a, a ton of data to go on. So, yeah, I, I don't want to comment too broadly on that. But generally speaking, Pwn to Own does pay out quite a bit more than CDI, as far as I'm aware. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so part of why I disagree a little bit and <clears throat> what I would say to anyone who is interested in uh, Pwn to Own, because, um, like, one thing Pwn to Own is kind of good for is, you know, if you want to get a little bit of, um, name recognition out there and uh you know if you're interested in competitions just like the competitive aspect of it uh it can be kind of fun um but just know that the competition is extremely stacked against the researcher um because for one thing like z was hinting at earlier uh, vendors like to publish last minute patches um because basically how pwn to own works is your exploit is expected to work up until the day of the draw um, so that's the software is kept up to date as of that, um, and vendors will push out patches like a day or a couple days before that day. And if it breaks your exploit, well, then you're, 
you're kind of screwed if it patches your bug. Um, or even if it doesn't patch your bug and it just makes it so that your exploit doesn't fire off, then you could also have a failed attempt um, when it gets to the event. So it's kind of um, pretty stacked against you, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, um, there is like a pretty high chance of collision when you're talking about the IoT targets. Um, Z was saying earlier, like, shouldn't knock the fact that it's IoT. I mean, I don't really knock the fact they're hosting IoT events. Uh, it is just something where it's like, because you have more of the low-hanging fruit issues, you do have a lot more collision. Um, Pwn to Own has tend, tended, like the meta for the last couple of years, has tended to go towards path of least resistance. Um, instead of like I mean, trying to hit least, like the juiciest targets. Path of least resistance is kind of what you do when it comes to security. Oh, well, like trying to break things. Uh, I mean, the, the meta is always the path of least resistance. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I really agree. Um, but anyway, that's how it's been with Pwn to Own with IoT. Um, you know, th there are a few submissions for, like, I think there were a few, like, Samsung submissions in here, too. So it wasn't all, you know, routers and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it is an idea to look at uh, of where to submit. But just know that you are going to have to rely on your stuff surviving for a long time. And you have to rely on winning uh the the draw for slots um that way if there's any collision that you were you are the first submission um this is one thing that i was well, talking a little bit in discord about uh go ahead z i'll get into my thing after i was just going to say with the collision aspect i mean you already have the collision aspect when you're doing bug bounties um it is a little bit different in this case because everybody's kind of holding on until the event and then you know you've got that little bit of luck of the draw in terms of the payout. Um, and I probably should have looked this up on how exactly ZDI does handle the payout. If they, I believe they split it across everybody. So it's not like it's better than a lot of bug bounty programs that just don't give you a payout like at all. Um, but I don't know. I mean, for anybody that's doing bug bounty, you're already dealing with, uh, you know, trying to survive the dupe god. Um, yeah, so as as far as I know, ZDI doesn't pay out for, like, duplicate submissions if you are after the first one. Like, you, you just get, like, s swag or style points or something. Like, you, you don't really get the master opponent points or whatever. Um, or, like, the payout. So, unless that's changed recently. Well, I thought I, I read here, actually in one of the results page about them splitting the results. But okay, I don't yeah, remember. So they, they say in one instance here, uh, the Synactive team was able to execute their attack over the exploit they used was previously used. They still earned $5,000. Okay. Um, and yeah, they, they, so, okay. I think that is actually new. Um, and that is worth calling out because I don't remember ever seeing this before, uh, where they would pay out some, some money on bug collisions because yeah, like it used to be, like if you collided and you didn't go first, you were just kind of screwed and uh, you would get like maybe one point or no points. And they would just call out as like, Hey, this was a cool attack, but it, you know, unfortunately they missed the, it, somebody else already did it. Um, but yeah, it good call out. Like they do mention that they still pay up $5,000 on bug collisions. So you still do get something. Um, and I think that is kind of important because when you're talking about, pwn to own and, and whatnot it's a little bit different from your bog standard bounty program in my opinion because the threshold of what you have to submit is a lot higher for pwn to own um you're not just submitting the bug you have to submit like a working exploit which requires putting effort into it or a, a good bit more effort into it rather um and doing some maintenance on it like yeah it, it it's because of the work and the effort involved and the fact that you are tied to the like time of the event for submitting it. Um, yeah, I, I did like, I, I was, a was not a big fan of when they were just like, Oh, you collided. That's unfortunate. Sucks for you. Um, but it seems like that might've changed at least a little bit. So, you know, yeah, and I'm not sure I, I might be swinging a little bit the other direction for, uh, like being a bit more positive on pwned own. Oh no. I mean, ultimately my thought is if you're doing bug bounty already, this at the very least might be something interesting to you. You're okay with those risks. Okay. With all of that. 
I think it's worth considering. I mean, I'll leave it at that. You can kind of decide for yourself um, how to take it, or if you agree with CDI here, but... Yeah, I, I would just caution anyone who is interested just to be aware of, like, um, how high the likelihood is of you being collided with or something like that, or your bug being fixed, like, the day before. So, you know, speaking of that, we can start to segue into some of those blog posts that were put out. Uh, our first one is by Synactive. And, uh, yeah, so Synactive has a post on two bones they had in Netgear REX30 routers uh, that were patched like two to three days before the draw. Um, I think it was more like a week, because uh, I believe they were patched on... Um, no, uh, I, I think 30th. the draw was December 2nd, and it was patched November 30th. Oh, so. okay, I thought the draw was later. My bad then, yeah, because it was patched on the 30th. Yeah. Yeah, just so, a couple uh, days then. Yeah, so they found a couple bugs. Uh, one bug was a LAN bug, the other was a WAN issue. Um, the LAN one was a pretty funny one and is the first one they go into detail on. Um, and it was a, a pretty funny command injection in this, uh, PA HTTP sniff service that ran on the router by default. Um, so they, they ran strings against it, did a little bit of reversing, and they ended up discovering that the user agent header was being used to construct this PD util command. And, uh, it just inserts like the user agent straight in there in quotations with no sanitization and call system with it. So yeah, you can pretty easily break out of the quotations and inject commands. Um, there is a 255 character limit, but that's more than enough for getting a reverse shell or whatever else you wanted to do. Um, the when issue was a little bit more of a configuration type bug, and that had to do with the fact that they found that SSH and Telnet and some other services were listening on both IPv4 and IPv6 addresses. And while in IPv4 all the ports were closed to WAN, on IPv6, there were open ports for things like Telnet. Um, they did have some IP6 table rules in place, but they were only applied against the uh, BR0 device or the, the LAN interface. Uh, and the WAN interface, it's only applied if a public IPv6 is provided. Um, so if a link local address is used on WAN to connect to Telnet, um, rules won't be applied to it, and anyone on the same network segment um, as the Netgear can query the link local address and connect to various services. Uh, such as Telnet, SSH, web admin, etc. Um, the attack they went with there was uh, exfiltrating uh, Etsy password, and then they cracked the support account password. They said that took like less than a second with John the Ripper, so it wasn't super hard there. Um, yeah, and they mentioned and then, that's yeah, hard coded, so that's across multiple devices. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, so with support, uh, they can now connect to Telnet with a restricted shell. Um, they say that escaping that restricted shell is pretty easy, though. There was like this hidden ASH command, which could just give you like a full featured shell. So, so um, I believe they actually I don't know if you saw maybe an early version where they said uh, that they had the ash ash shell, but um, they just say calling SH now. Ah, OK. Um, So, yeah, like just, you know, maybe they don't list SH as being there, but you've just got access to your shell anyhow. So. Oh, so yeah, it's not really a security boundary at all. <laughs> yeah, it it really is like both of these. They're very much a joke. The type of issue here, you know, copying. Like this is the sort of bug that we were seeing in web apps fifteen years ago. Um, you know that really stupid sort of command injection. Granted, we still see it. I I still see reports of it, but that's the type of thing that's getting paid out in for some of these pontone bugs. Um, and also, uh, Ridger, I don't know how to say your name, you need vowels in there, but, um, does mention that the submission deadline was the second, but the draw wasn't until the fifth. So they had to submit their vulnerabilities, or the information about them earlier, and then the draw was still a little bit later. Still, by that point, you need to know what XY you're using, and you're kind of locked into doing that. Yeah, good clarification, though. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, like a couple days or yeah, a couple days before that submission, um, Netgear shipped a patch, which fixed both vulnerabilities. Um, they switched the uh, Putsniff service to use execve instead of system um, to tackle the command injection. Um, and they also now apply the uh, the firewall properly on IPv6 addresses for the WAN interface. So, yeah, uh, they were fairly straightforward fixes. Um, 
And this hotfix also fixed some other vulnerabilities, which are discussed in the next post, uh, which was put out by Star Labs. So again, another set of Netgear RX30 bugs, and again, a LAN and a WAN bug. Um, and very similar. Extremely similar, yeah. <laughs> Actually, so, initially, I thought I had scrolled through this, just reviewing it before the show, if we were going to add it or not. And I saw that it was fixed by doing the same using Xeg. So I'm like, oh, I think they had a bug collision yet, too. It's not even a collision. There are different bugs, just same issue all throughout. Yeah, it's like Sorry. a variant, Go ahead. basically. Um, so yeah, so this time um, they found a command injection in the DHCP service uh, and was triggered through DHCP packets. Um, specifically, the hostname field uh, would get used to build the system command and send lease info. So yeah, very similar to the ones Synactive had. Though this one was a little bit more restricted. Um, this one they only had 30, uh, 63 bytes to work with instead of 255. Um, but that that should still be enough to be able to like build up a file or something to do something useful. Um, I think for their POC, they just create a temp file with touch. But um, in theory, like even with 63 byte limit, you, sh you should be able to take advantage of that. Uh, it's tight. Even if it takes multiple exploit attempts. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what a good strategy would be. I didn't like play around with this one. It's tight, but it feels like you should be able to, like you were saying, just get out into another file and kind of, you know, maybe get like letter by letter or pending in there or something and then build your payload that way. Like it should be doable. That feels feels like enough room to do it, but it's definitely tight. Yeah. Um. The WAN bug is an improper certificate validation in the uh, PuckFoo service, uh, which is used for checking firmware upgrades. It's only ran at boot time, which is a factor for exploitation. But the issue is uh, it would try to send an, H an HTTPS request to whatever is specified as the upstream base URL, um, which is stored in this D2D database. And when they do so, um, we had an issue like this kind of recently, actually, that was really similar. They explicitly disable um, the curl options for verifying the host and the peer. So, yeah, even though they're using HTTPS, like, because they're disabling the checks in curl, um, somebody in a man-in-the-middle position can still supply, like, a fake update page, um, which leads to another command injection, because the update page's response will be cached to disk and will contain a URL for download files, uh, which again is just used to build up a command that gets executed. And since this is presumably trusted data, though not in this instance, um, it just gets passed straight through the system. Um, it's worth noting that for the WAN bug, um, the fix that they did for that was on the command injection side of things. Um, so they switched from using system to exec VE again. Um, but it seems that they didn't fix the cert validation bug. So because of that, Star Labs believes the bug could still be exploited in a slightly different way uh, through the update cron job um, because the updates weren't really signed or validated either. So you could potentially get a malicious firmware update installed in an MITM position. Um, the problem is though that that cron job only runs once per day. Uh, they tried change. They tried to change the router's time uh, with the NTP server, like just tried to make it so that they could run it more than once per day, but they weren't able to really get that to work. Um, so yeah, it can only be triggered like once per day at a specific time, but because they seemingly didn't fix the like cert, uh, the, the core issue with the fact that you can um, get like a fake update server accepted, um, there could be like a few other attacks that you could go with there. So yeah, it, it really puzzles me because I wonder like why they wouldn't just enable the cert validation or why they disabled it in the first place. Um, maybe it's some weird thing with, with their setup where I don't know. I actually can't even play devil's advocate. I tried, but yeah, <laughs> I don't so, know. I mean, this is one of those cases where I could understand them, you know, uh, one of the things you have to do, or at least keep in mind is they have to keep all of the certificates updated at the same time. Um, otherwise, you know, they just might not have, you know, all the valid new and re certificates that said they're already reaching out for the firmware updates they're connecting online it shouldn't be that hard to also get all of the certs updated uh, even as part of the firmware update um yeah most of the things that i can kind of think of as you know being reason for this like um really just come down to 
they also wouldn't be connected to the internet. Like, oh, well, they wouldn't be able to update it if it's, you know, behind, used deep in the network, behind a firewall, and, like, no internet access is just used for, like, some, you know, disconnected network. But then this whole functionality doesn't matter either, because they're not able to do an update if they're not even able to get out to the network. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of leaves me feeling like, you like, there doesn't feel like a good reason for this. But we have seen it now multiple times, the same sort of issue. So maybe this is just kind of an ignorance thing, just not aware of kind of the situational reasons for why they can't enable it. Um, I guess another thing could be if everything outbound ends up passing through like transparent proxy that rewrites the certificates. Um, maybe something like that could be going on, you know, later, like downstream. So all of its requests could potentially not have. That feels like it should be an option, though, rather than just disabling it for everybody, because in some setups, there might be that sort of intercepting firewall going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, this bug, again, it's, it's super similar with, like, the system being used and running it that way. Almost silly to see it, but yeah, I mean, it's... With bugs that easy, it feels like maybe you want to take a look and see what happens with uh, Pwn to Own. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> something we've talked about before as well um, is just like what I can see with these vulnerabilities from both Synactive and Sir Labs here is it seems like the code is very decentralized in terms of uh, like a lot of code duplication. Um, and so like variant analysis could be a, a super good technique to use on like a code base like this because yeah like we've seen system being a vector for getting command execution in like four different cases now just in this podcast so yeah um variant analysis would be a good idea for these types of targets uh it seems like there's a lot of code reuse and uh bugs can end up popping up in multiple places with the same sorts of root causes so yeah although in fairness to netgear they also did patch the bug in four different places. Uh, presumably, they may have just, you know, gone through and stopped using system altogether, using um, the exec family of functions, which makes it harder to do incorrectly. Not impossible, but, like, harder. Um, so they very well may have done their own variant analysis. But, I mean, we've seen this sort of bug in multiple places, actually, within Netgear and just within other routers, so... Yeah, uh, so if you want something to do, you can just write a quick CodeQL query and just run it against all the routers, and then so you have your bugs, probably. That is kind of where you have a little bit of a challenge. Um, when it comes to the IoT, and kind of if you if you are doing standard bug bounty work versus doing, um, like, looking at Ponton, I mean, technically you can argue about it is still bug bounty and stuff, but I do kind of draw a distinction between, like, the web app-focused stuff and when you even move into game hacking, which is also kind of popular for bounties, I do see a difference there. Um, but with this, like you are dealing with binaries, so they did have to, um, at least for some things, it's clear they were decompiling. They did uh, have to do a bit of reversing. You don't have source access in a lot of these cases. That's true. Yeah, which also means you can't do code QL for what it's worth. You'd have to go with like Wegley or. Yeah, you'd uh, have to Sem do like a binary focused approach. Yeah. Yeah. Some grip on the disassembly could work too. Nonetheless, I mean, you could, I mean, I think they use strings. So, like, that's also an option. Or uh, I think that was Synactive actually you mentioned using strings. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, there is a little bit more of a boundary on there, but the types of bugs being found here, you know, it, it feels like an area that's easy to get into. I am saying that from the outside, only seeing a report like this. So, Unfortunately, sometimes the reports can be misleading, but um, it feels just like some something I want to call out, even though these bugs aren't that interesting. But as a whole, in context, it feels interesting, I guess. Yeah, something you mentioned just kind of sparked an idea in me. I don't know if it's been done already. Um, it might be a little weird talking about it on the bu Bounty podcast, because this is a little bit more binary focused in a way. Um, but I wonder if there's any binary ninja plugins that take advantage of the IL levels to do sort of like a code queue, like a querying type thing. 
um, for these kinds of issues because that that's one area that IL could be super useful for. Yeah, you can um, even if you use like MLIL or something. Um, um, well, yeah, I, you can, but I mean, is there a plugin that lets you do it in like a scripted way? Because that could be like super useful for finding these types of bugs. That's um, what I was just going to mention. I don't think they've got like something where somebody has created a DSL for doing that. Uh, sorry, a domain specific language. Um, so like, I don't think anybody's created like a uh, Ninja query language or something um, and turned that for, into a plugin. Um, well, I will say that would be really cool if someone would do it. <laughs> but I, I'm saying that, but there is a plugin. I would have to look into this a little bit more to see what they're doing. But I know there is one plugin that does do some of these sorts of scans for issues using the IL already. So I'm not sure if they expose any sort of higher level interface. But also, I would have to go and just look at it. Like, I'm not going to be able to figure out on the show what they're doing. Um, I don't even remember the name of the plugin, which also makes it hard to talk about. I just recall that there is a plugin that is doing some scanning on there. I just don't know how much they expose versus how much is just these hard-coded passes. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're saying like, these types of issues are good to look out for. And yeah, something like that for Binary Ninja, even though it is a bit more binary analysis, um, could be useful for finding these higher level types of issues. So. Yeah, something to keep a lookout yeah, for, I guess. I mean, IABR mentions uh, just with ChatGPT, uh, use that <laughs> to get your code back, and then have it uh, find the bugs at the same time. Yeah, it's it's already starting to replace us, so you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's taking all the jobs. All right, so uh, we'll get into our next post here, which is an RCE in Spring Boot uh, error page on an undisclosed site that utilizes an Akamai WAF bypass. Um, and it started out with another researcher by the name of Usman Mancha uh, contacting the author, uh, PMNH, um, where they'd found a bug in a private bounty program, but hadn't been able to bypass the web app firewall, uh, which had some strict rules um, in place. So, yeah, the, the post focuses a little bit more on the WAF bypass aspect of it. Um, the vulnerability was a server-side template injection via the Spring expression language in the Spring Boot error page, um, which is a well-known issue that never got a CVE, um, as far as the author's aware anyway. Um, and that just comes down to the fact that vulnerable versions of Spring Boot would render error messages from a thrown exception into the page using spell, um, and it would do so recursively. So an error message that had a spell expression would get evaluated at ren render time, and um, you know you could get spring expression language evaluated uh, as an attacker. So in this case, uh, the queue parameter could be passed for a query and you could get that into the error man uh, message and get injection through there. Um, generally, the strategy for exploiting a spell injection like this is to invoke some Java method that's useful, like runtime exec or process builder start. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, this application used Akamai's web app firewall. So trying these types of payloads would get detected by the firewall and blocked. Um, and it took a good amount of effort to bypass it. Um, so they go through some of the things that they tried, um, trying the more obvious ones like using the spell shorthand for the Java runtime, um, though that was blocked. Um, from there, they tried to get an arbitrary class reference and instantiate a useful class. So if I can jump um, in there, they, they go... go so I really like this post because it's talking about the thought process behind the um, coming up with the WAF bypass, not just step by step what they did, which is kind of how you're summarizing it on here. Um, so, yeah, they did. As you were just saying, they tried kind of some of the obvious things. The point of that being, though, to build up from there to have here's what works and what can get passed through and what does get blocked. So, yeah, the obvious things got blocked, just calling in for the link runtime class which is what they can use to actually get access to the exec command um as they went on from there it's okay what can you build off from then that's where they talk about getting this arbitrary class or get trying to get access to some arbitrary class um using the example here is just saying the number two dot class that's going to give you you know two is you know an integer accessing its class property which gives you the how do you want to say it? the class object, um, not an instance of it? You can kind of get more into Java internals with that, but um, 
ends up with that. And from class, the reason why class matters is because from class or from the class object, you're able to call for name, which can instant or can provide you another arbitrary class object. Um, so from there, you would be able to kind of build up ideally anything you wanted. Um, but while they were working on just getting the class, they realized another thing. They could do this class stuff for name, but uh, trying to provide an argument to that. Um, in this example there, the Java link string, that would end up getting blocked or failing um, because the quotes were what was breaking there. It was doing some sort of modification or tampering of those quotes, so it just wouldn't work out when it actually got passed through here. So they had to come up with a way to do this without using any quotes. They had to create a string without using any of the quote characters that you would traditionally use create a string, leading into their step three of looking at, well, how do you go and create this arbitrary string? Um, that led them into, you know, one, just using the string constructor. However, that's getting blocked off the ways of actually creating new instances of objects. So using new T or new instances, those are getting caught. So they ended up just reading the docs. Um, and as they found in the Java docs, as a side note, reading the docs, it's always worth, like, you can always kind of find some really interesting things, especially on these large projects like Java. Another good one to read the docs on is just Bash, where you have all these weird and random features that you don't necessarily know about. In fairness, actually, I don't think this next feature is all that interesting, or all that, sorry, is all that um, unexpected. Uh, that from you know, character, you have a two-string method. Um, so from the character class, you're able to access the two-string method on it, uh, which can give you the string representing a given character. Ultimately leading to their whole string building, uh, they could do, like, string by string. So they could use plus to uh, do string concatenation, um, being this nice little blob here where they do two, two-string, uh, carrot, and then use character at to get the character object. Uh, which they need for the string, access the class of that, and then access to string with just the number, because characters are just, you know, numbers uh, of the character they wanted, and they could repeat that multiple times. It is worth noting something that did catch my eye was they had this plus two in there. Um, and I reached out to ask what that, because it's not explained anywhere in here, and it was something that was just passed in earlier trying to do Laugh bypass and getting around some of the earlier calls. Um, and may or may not actually be necessary now. They just didn't simplify it out. Um, so if you look um, back and kind of see it sitting there, it's kind of worth noting it's potentially just doing a little bit of WAF magic. So it's not quite pattern matching, although I believe they mentioned that it was for um for a prior query that was no longer getting flagged here. Um, anyway, so they kind of lead that as their way of creating the overall string. So now they can finally go back, it's like they can create this string. So now they can go back to the class.forName and actually get their arbitrary class. So that was their WAF bypass. Now they can actually start doing things. Um, and they basically use the for name to get the Java lang runtime from there, reflect like. Basically, they just keep going through and get access to the runtime exec and building up their whole thing there. There's also a little bit about the final payload. Of course, every character of their actual payload string that they want to use needs to go through this same process, too, of building up the string character by character. And as you notice, that payload is like 48. I think this one's 48 bytes. Uh, it's a little bit long. Um for every character to need to go through that plus the plus sign. So, I mean, given different options there, round it up to like 50 characters per character. You don't, you're starting to run up against just URL length requirements or restrictions. Uh, so, they did have that to kind of deal with a little bit, but they did kind of come up with something that they could work with. I read the whole page, or read the whole blog for that, but. On the whole, I thought this was a really interesting post just for the process and thought process of going through on trying to find the WAF bypass. Um, not something I've need to do a lot doing the consulting. I'm often behind the WAF, just looking at the application itself. Uh, 
from my personal experience, I haven't done a lot of that, but it kind of just shows that thought process, which I don't see often. Often we talk about the WAP bypass, just like, I did a thing, and they just give you the final payload, which probably isn't really going to work anymore. So it's nice to see the underlying work here. And he also calls out that this was like 16 hours of like clock time, not necessarily working time, but over 500 attempts to just work this out. So giving you some context as to how long they actually spent playing around with this to actually find their final exploit. Yeah, and I like the way the attack works because it it's like that idea of primitives. You know, you're you're looking at like what can I do and how can I use that to get me something that does a bit more, you know, and just keep chaining that until you get to your end goal. Um so yeah, in this case, like your primitive would have been uh being able to build up like character by character, um bypassing the the checking of that. Um, and then, you know, you use that to build up your ability to create arbitrary uh, classes. Um, and then you take like, yeah, you just keep kind of building up. Right. Um, so, yeah, I like that aspect of it as well. Uh, and the way they talk through it, um, some pretty cool like tricks you can probably take away uh, and think about using for other web app firewalls, too. So, yeah, it, it's got a lot of uh, the, the post has got a lot of value, I think, in uh being like a good reference for for web app firewall bypassing yeah like you may or may not be able to actually copy the exact techniques being used here because this is kind of specific to spell i mean it's it's a spell thing you need to find the things in spell that work to actually uh do this but you can apply that same concept you know like i said with the very first one trying the obvious something i say a lot is test your assumptions of Kind of the same idea, you know, figure out your baseline. This definitely works and slowly build up from there, which is what we kind of see them doing and recognizing what they need to do and following that path along. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, it feels kind of obvious that this is kind of how you go about it. At the same time, I think if you've never done it, it could just be magic. So it's really awesome to see it documented here. Um, I have, I've seen a couple write-ups for the WAF bypasses. But I don't know, something about this one kind of hits a little bit nicer in terms of covering the process. So continuing on WAF bypasses, we have another post uh, on one by Team 82, and I'll let Z get into this one. Yeah, and this one, um, they talk a little bit more about the vulnerability itself, too, um, which isn't super interesting. It basically is just a straightforward Though I will say, kind of one of my pet peeves when it comes to websites, if you're going to have the magnify option for images, especially code images, at least magnify it. I'm pretty sure this is smaller than the actual on-screen one. Not really related to the write-up, though. But that's why it's blurry for those of you actually watching. Uh, the actual vulnerability basically just copied in uh, user-controlled data right into the query, so just a straightforward SQL injection. Problem, or at least a couple problems that they had with this one were, you know, a couple limitations. So, sorry, stepping back slightly, this first part, they're talking about their SQL injection, some of the problems they had, um, and not quite dealing with the WAF aspect just yet. Uh, so what they end up doing here is they had that injection, it's arbitrary put in there, but they're still kind of limited on it in that they can only retrieve, at least using a union style attack. So uh, having your injection there, union select, and then reselecting the rows because everything else has been integers, they're limited to integers also. Um, so what they did there is they end up using the string to array, which just turns, you know, the one string into an array or multiple rows of character or of integers, sorry. Um, our characters, which are integers, uh, leaves them with that, giving them multiple rows. So now they can reunion select all these extra rows with their arbitrary strings. And then they had a fun issue is that all of the returned rows, it would do this asynchronous work on them. And then as they would finish, it would add them into the results list or whatever, which meant all of the rows came back in a uh, random order. So they could select the string. They just didn't get the string in order. Uh, dealing with that was just a matter of, uh, you know, since a character is going to be between, or your standard ASCII is going to be between uh, 1 and, or I guess 0, including null, um, and 127, and again, to extend it ASCII, 
they basically just multiplied whatever the row index was by a thousand, added it to the number, and that way they basically embedded the row index inside of the integer returned and could work it back out. Uh, third limitation, performance. Um, if they tried to make too many rows, that processing that was happening, that asynchronous processing, it would just take too long and they wouldn't get a response back. And it was slow enough that they felt the pain of doing just a row by row, especially when every string needs to be brought out character by character. Um, so they had that and they basically just, you know, bit shifted all the numbers together into a big end. Um, so that's how they got around the actual querying. The more interesting part here is the WAF bypass. And what happened with this one is they, you know, spun up the AWS WAF, started playing around. What, what works, what doesn't, trying to understand how it's blocking, to which they kind of saw two patterns of that, either a block list of words that the WAF would search for, recognizing it as SQL syntax, there's too many blocking the request. And the other option being that it would parse the SQL syntax from the request. Um, and if it successfully identifies it as SQL, it'll toss it out as a SQL injection attack. So makes sense on how you would imagine a WAF working. Um, and so they start to ask the question, well, is there any syntax of SQL that it just wouldn't recognize? And that's where they come across using these JSON operators uh, or functions, depending on depending on which um, which database engine you've got. So JSON extract and such in MySQL, but you have actual operators uh, inside of uh, PG SQL. Um, and SQLite has the operator too. Either way, th they came across this and started using that. And what they found was effectively using the JSON syntax. And they explained a bit more about that. The gist of it is being able to either have like a column or an input that contains just JSON data and you can provide like a little query, query bit there. Um, you see it in NoSQL, uh, NoSQL database like MongoDB, you can do this sort of querying of specific subfields in the JSON, doing it very similar to that. And then you can use the operator to say like, look for these values in this column or whatever. Uh, there's different ways you can do that. It's just this magical sequence. And I don't actually understand how their bypass works. I have kind of an intuition here. But their WAF bypass, effectively, they found that just tossing in the, the JSON operator and having that as part of the query, um, what they say is just threw the WAF into a loop and allowed us to uh, supply malicious SQL injection payloads. So yeah, they would just take their normal injection payload Prepend it with this little bit of JSON query, and it would just work. Um, That's pretty funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, like just doesn't care about the rest. It's just good to go because. So my assumption is if it's parsing and looking at like oh it's a SQL and it doesn't know about that syntax, fair enough. It's like oh this is invalid and therefore not good. But then that wouldn't catch like any of the cases where you have any sort of data prepended to the actual JSON, or sorry, to the actual uh, injectable query. Like it would just break, it, it feels very, very flimsy. Like it'd it would be a, break yeah, it'd be a cases. very weak validation, yeah. Although it seems like this is a very weak validation and does this, and I don't quite get why, but it does this, or did this at least, in multiple uh, WAFs, say, that this could be used to bypass most vendors they check. So Palo Alto, F5, the AWS one, of course, Cloudflare, Imperva. Um, they found the one, CloudGuard, uh, or Checkpoints, CloudGuard, AppSec, and OpenAppSec, which had mitigations for this. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of surprised that just including that prepended would just be like, you know, the WAF just kind of nopes out of it and is like, nope, this is okay, we're good. Um, and the only way I really understand that happening is if it just thinks it's invalid SQL and therefore it's okay. Um, but that just, I don't know, feels too flimsy for me. Um, it also feels, um, their description here throws it into a loop. Doesn't entirely make sense to me because that starts feeling more like a specific implementation bug. 
And unless all these WAFs are using the same implementation, I wouldn't expect it to be present on all of them. Um, so yeah, there are some details I don't totally understand here, but it is interesting to note that there's JSON, um, uh, the, the JSON operators were able to create a pretty significant problem. Like they were able to update a SQL map to basically just prepend this sequence and get around the WAF. So like, it really is that simple in this case with what they found. Um, but it's also one of those cases of, you know, read the docs and you might find some interesting functionality. Granted, this is fairly well-known functionality if you do any database work. Yeah, I'll be honest. It seems like one of those things where if I tried it and it worked, I would be like, huh? <laughs> it's one of those things I would try without it expecting it to work and being like, okay, this seems like a little too good to be true. Let's like make sure that this actually is what I think it is. Um, cause yeah, like it, it seems like a dead simple bypass and like too easy, but I guess in this case it worked out and it, it really was, it wasn't too good to be true in this case, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, so. a, it's a great find. Um, like I like this sort of bug. I like that sort of, you know, just finding the edge cases that the WAF devs didn't think about because there definitely are those cases where they're trying to process this a lot faster than what the actual SQL engine needs to. Uh, so they're going to take shortcuts. There are things that aren't going to work. Like it is a good place to consider looking for any sort of issue. So it makes sense from that perspective that they wouldn't have, you know, a complete SQL engine parser or like a SQL parser. Uh, kind of as deep within in the middle of a WAF. Uh, but yeah, I mean, still interesting to see. Yeah. And uh, we have another meme bug in the episode, uh, which is a uh, OTP leak through cookie uh, leading to account takeover. So yeah, this was a post on a one-time password leak in an e-commerce site that was found in the wild. Um, and like I said, this, this was a pretty big meme of a bug. Um, basically, they looked at the login and registration portal and noticed that after registering, you could log in with a one-time passcode sent via SMS. Um, now already, this, this seems like a pretty damn insecure login option to support um out of the gate but you know for whatever reason the site wanted to support that um the problem is not only did it support like otp login like that but they also uh when the researcher checked the cookies they noticed that a new cookie was added called otp cookies and it, it contained the one-time passcode so yeah if you just looked at, like if you just looked at the cookies after you know sending the request um it would just have the, the passcode in the cookies so yeah i don't know this one's really weird um it seems like one of those cases where the system is just fundamentally flawed and broken uh it's basically doing like client-side validation of the one-time passcode i guess i can't well, think of why else be... they would need yeah i don't know why they need the cookie exactly i could feel like they toss in the cookie so they don't have to keep track of that state um and that way, when you come through, they just use the cookie and validate what you actually sent and like kind of implementing it that way, which is not a good way to do this because the OTP is supposed to be secret to the client. But. Should at least be encrypted or something. There, there was a um, it was a Twitter thing, actually. Uh, I want to say a couple years ago, we covered it on the podcast, Twitter OTP bypass. And it wasn't putting in the cookies, but it was including it in the response. Um, and mm. in the response is something we've seen quite a few times. And again, it shouldn't be in the response. It's supposed to be a secret. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it, it still doesn't make sense. But we've seen that sort of bug happen quite a few times here. So this one didn't surprise me, but it is a fun bug nonetheless. Yeah. So, you know, you would need to know the phone number of a target account to exploit this. Um but, I mean, that's not a very high ask at all, really, especially for a targeted attack. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty silly bug and could be exploited fairly easily as well. Um, and, yeah, like, if, if you, for some reason, need to stick a secret, like the one-time passcode in cookies, um, it should at least don't. be encrypted. Uh, well, yeah, okay, I don't, mean, I all, even, but... yeah, I mean, yeah, if it's encrypted, technically it's a little bit safer. I... It just doesn't seem like the right process at all to store it with yeah, the user. Yeah, because... Yes, people do session cookies that contain encrypted data, so... 
I, there's always the risk, though, of decryption. Of course, if you do that, there's a bigger problem. Yeah, I don't know. Like it's we we have seen going. issues before where like uh, sensitive data has been stored in cookies encrypted, um, and an attacker was still able to do something useful. Um, you know, just like swapping the data or using some oracle to encrypt the data, like get the site to do it for you, um, things like that. So yeah, it's it's definitely like something that shouldn't be there at all. But yeah, just leaving it there in plain text is is pretty insane. So don't yeah, do although... that at least. <laughs> Unbug to come across nonetheless. It's you know, one of those uh cases where poke your head in at the cookies, see what's there. Or I guess you'd probably see the sec cookie too, you know, if you're using burp or something, but yeah, it, it was kind of just one of those meme issues to toss into this episode. It's it's a silly issue to see, but it's out there. Yeah. So our last topic is not actually a vulnerability, but it's uh, just kind of a funny post that we thought we'd bring up um, from Portswigger. Uh, and it talks about chat, chat GPT, which is funny because, you know, there was some discussion about that in, in Twitch chat. Um, and yeah, so it's called chat GPT bid for bogus bug bounty is thwarted. And as you can probably guess from the title, um, basically what happened here was uh, there was a bogus uh, bounty submission where somebody was using chat GPT to try to like claim a bounty um and you know the the triager was wondering like okay what's going on here like they're seeing what's what seems like it would be technically like literate information um but it, it like the context was completely missing and didn't match up to like what they were saying the issue was um, well, so and it's not that it wasn't quite matching up but basically the um the actual vulnerability being reported was something that actually couldn't happen like at all yeah um it was that code or sorry chat gpt um recognized that hey like these values weren't set up i forget exactly how the values were being used but like a couple values they were being inherited from another contract this was a smart contract issue um, but I'm sure they just took that code, passed it to ChatGPT, and was like, you know, are there any vulnerabilities in this or something? Uh, ChatGPT notices that um, the modifiers uh, that were being used aren't defined anywhere and has no concept that they can be defined in other code, like that's inherited or included. Um, and so it keeps asserting, hey, you know, you're doing this thing, and here are the problems with the game, giving ChatGPT descriptions of the problems. And yeah, they kind of summarize it here as I was I was most surprised by the mixture of clear writing and logic, but built off of a, of an ignorance of uh, 101 level coding basics. Like someone with all the swagger and sponsor cover Nomex of a NASCAR driver, but who can't find the steering wheel in a pickup truck. And that's very much I like, like that analogy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's it is. It's a good analogy. And it's how I felt a lot of times dealing with chat GPT when it comes to the vault stuff or a lot of topics. Actually, it'll, you know, say things that sound just about right. But it doesn't understand the things it's saying. So it creates these like, you know, stupid issues where in this case, um, you know, they're reporting a non-issue basically and i will say don't do this like don't just pass off a bug because chat jpt tells you it's a bug <laughs> and worse yeah. don't like only respond to their questions about it uh like because the uh the project maintainer here did say like oh these are inherited from wherever you know that's where they're defined and i'm sure he probably took that pass into chat gpt and let chat gpt go and explain again everything um eventually the guy did just say nice try chat gpt and called him out on it do not do this if you're actually trying to report bugs like this this feels even worse than big bounty um it is, at least with big bounty they're put well i mean a lot of people aren't i mean they're just spamming things but at least they sometimes have a real issue just doesn't matter as much as they think or isn't in context or whatever this is like, you know, not even not even the start of an issue, and they're coming up with all this stuff to read that just wastes the time of maintainers, too. But yeah, just don't do it. I'm hoping nobody listening would actually do it, but I thought it was a fun thing to kind of end off the year with. 
Yeah. Um, and it's a point in favor of what you were talking about uh, back when we were talking about ChatGPT a week ago or whatever, um, which is the fact that like it's it looks like valid information that's coming out at you, but it might be faulty in like the initial premise. And if you don't know any better or you're, you know, reading too deeply into it, uh, it's easy to miss that. Um, and yeah, that's why it can be so effective for wasting a researcher's time uh, in a case like this. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a, a funny application of uh, ChatGPT. And, you know, like I was talking about back on that episode when we were talking about it, um, I gave it some of our spot the vuln challenges. And while it would find the vulnerability sometimes, uh, it would also find false vulnerabilities, like false positives. Um, so yeah, using it for something like bug bounty would be terrible. Um, yeah, and especially yeah, submitting directly from it would be even more terrible. Yeah, um, like but it is kind it... of a funny story as long as you're not the maintainer, I guess, who had their time wasted. Yeah, using it to help you with report writing, I think, is totally valid to, you know, ask it about maybe rephrasing something, explaining something a bit more clearly, or getting some ideas. Um, and there are actually ChatGPT detectors also that exist to detect when something was written by ChatGPT. Um, but I would say, like, using it as an assistant is fair game. But don't try and just pass it off as your own. Like that, and that is also just against the terms of service of ChatGPT. Granted, I don't know how long we're going to even have ChatGPT out for free. I mean, they've been having a lot of uh, things like overload and stability issues uh, since they've launched it. Just you know, too much interest. Feels like it's they also might been need pretty a... heavily nerfed, unfortunately. Um, there's a lot of stuff now where if you try to get it to do it, it'll just be like, nope. I do not want to do that or I, I wasn't built to do that or whatever. Um, like there, there's been a fair amount of times where uh, I'll be playing with, like I like to play with code examples and pass it off to it. But um, like sometimes recently where I've went to do it, it's just like, Oh, I am not designed to write code or something. And it was like, okay, you just did it for me like yesterday, but okay, whatever. <laughs> you know. So it seems like it's being nerfed a little bit as well, unfortunately. So yeah, that, I'm not totally sure if they're actually cases. updating anything on that front, like actually retraining it to do that. Um, I think that could just be, I mean, they might be. I just, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. They have been changing, like, some of the UI stuff a bit. Uh, but I think we're getting into the weeds that aren't really secure, security relevant either. Um, For sure. Who was it in chat? Uh. And yeah, IABR mentions, not going to lie, I've used ChatGPT to help me write reports lately because I'm bad with words and it makes things easier. Yeah, if I was still writing a lot of reports, I would totally consider having ChatGPT like, provide me some initial foundation to start working from like, hey, what are the important topics to cover with this? Or like, um, explain this issue. And then I would probably rework it, add in more details. That is something I find when you ask ChatGPT those high level things either includes like really stupid details like you don't care about and skips things like you probably do uh but again as an assistant i you know there's value um we've already had our discussion about using chat gpt so i think i'll probably just leave my comments there yeah you can refer back to our, our episode from last week about that um for anyone that's interested so. which was just episode 174 did that did we just talk about on our last episode the binary one I think we talked about it on binary, yeah. So it should be 174. Just, um, I'm just double checking that now. Yeah, it was just, yeah, just episode 174, uh, right towards the start. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not going to talk about too much more there, but it is kind of a funny uh, topic, and it could be somewhere that is a problem point for, you know, ChatGPT being used somewhat maliciously, because. Yeah, like even if you're not trying necessarily to waste or somebody's time, you are going to end up wasting somebody's time reporting uh, from ChatGPT like this. So. Don't report bugs that you don't understand. Um, yeah. I think that would be kind of a big rule of thumb that you should just generally follow. And I'm hoping anybody that's listening to us is probably already beyond the point of trying to do that big bounty and super easy bugs or super easy money that way. Um. 
I have more hope in our viewers than uh, that. But I, again, I thought it was a funny, funny instance to see it being used so quickly like that. And, you know, having it called out as, again, just a laugh before Christmas. Yeah. So with that said, that's everything that we have for today. So thank you, everyone who tuned in. Uh, VOD will be up on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. Uh, if you want to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter, links for those are down below or in the chat. Uh, we will be back tomorrow for the binary episode at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And if we don't see you then, uh, then happy holidays, and we will see you on January 9th when we return for the next Bounty episode.